And I want to say good morning for those of you who don't know me. Uh, my name is Stephen Baxley. I'm the family pastor at our Crosswind Spencer cam- campus. <clears throat> and Christmas is such a unique time when it comes to ministry. Um, people have so many personal traditions and, and how we think about Christmas, right, based on how we grew up, the traditions we had, maybe how our church celebrated it. And it affects everything that we, that we do. And we hold these things so closely. And as we talk about the Christmas story, it can go, I think, one of two ways. The first can turn into a well-actually conversation. You might know people who do this. You're starting to talk, um, and then this person pushes up their glasses, and they go, well, actually. And I'm going to tease these people a little bit, and it's okay because I'm one of them. So I'm going to make fun of myself. And this especially happens, I think, around the conversation of the wise men, or the magi, who we're talking about today. Well, actually, there weren't three magi, just three gifts. We really don't know how many there were. Well, actually, your nativity's wrong. The wise men weren't there at the birth of Jesus. They came sometime later, maybe around two. And we could go on with some of these. And then we have the opposite end of the spectrum, those that sometimes overly romanticize or simplify a story just to its components. It was pretty, it was perfect, it's just the sum of its parts. It's just a story that we, that we cherish. There were definitely amazing, beautiful, profound, and miraculous things that happened. But Jesus was born just like any other baby. There was screaming, both from the baby and Mary. It was messy, both the birth and relationally. Mary getting pregnant before she was married and Joseph openly admitting to be the dad. And we see just as much mess with the story of the wise men. So learning the story of God is not just about data and information going from here to here. The story itself is packed full of art as its authors often align more with poets, musicians, and prophets than they do with teachers, administrators, and engineers. But what makes this special is the baby. Not who he becomes later on the story. We cherish the baby at this moment. And we're going to see today that this is what the wise men know. It's not just a story to remind us that Jesus came and how it happened, or it's not just a cute story because there's a snuggly little baby. It's not a science explanation of how Jesus got here. But we need to ask, what is God teaching us, even in the midst of Advent and the birth story? We need to focus in on this child, Jesus, because it's his story we are telling. I know we read the passage, but I would like us to stand together and read it again. It's Matthew 2, 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men came from the east, arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned their own country by another route. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you just in your coming to save us. Lord, I pray as we reflect on this, that you would humble our hearts, Lord, that you would humble me, and that your words for us would just come forth, that we would honor you and love you with all that we are. Amen. You may be seated. So we've heard the text twice, but I want us to get really into it. So I'm going to retell the story a little bit with with some historical context and and some other things going all the way back to Matthew chapter 1. And I want us to get the whole picture of this context because Matthew is writing this, this letter, this book, and he is setting this up in a very specific way. So chapter 1, verse 1, we see him setting this up, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we get this idea that, that, that this person that we're going to be talking about, this descendant, is of David. So already we're talking about this ruler, this idea of kingship should be entering our mind, right? There is a king who's coming. And Pastor Kurt talked about last week, the virgin gets pregnant. And we're so used to that, but like, man, this should sound weird. Like, imagine if you knew somebody, right? And they're like, oh, I got pregnant. Oh, man, right? Who's who's the dad? There isn't one. You'd be like, you're crazy. Right? So think about like Mary's, Mary's with her people and like Joseph is openly like, I'm not the dad. Well, who's, it's the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, when the angel comes to him in the dream, says that this baby is going to save all people from their sins. Like we're setting up this story of epic proportions. And then chapter 2, behold, these, these magi, these men of status, these astrologers show up and they cause a stir. They saw a star rise, and based off this specific star, they know a king has been born, king of the Jews. And they go to Jerusalem, and they're asking about him, right? They're, they're not, they didn't go straight to Herod. Most likely, they're around the town asking about this. And it says, all of Jerusalem becomes troubled at the stir they are causing. You see, I think Jerusalem is freaking out because Herod is not known for being a kind king, as we see unfold in this story. What will he do when he hears talk of another king? Herod, who wants to pretend he's Jewish, is really an Edomite, and he has worked long and hard to have his power, and he will not give it up. He loves it. So Herod naturally becomes alarmed at the mention of a new king. Was not he the only king of the Jews? It took years of struggle to get this. Is this another attempt to dethrone him? Would this rumor stir up zealots and freedom fighters? That can't happen. And though Herod built the temple, he also contributed uh, temples to Caesar in Gentile cities. 
And so protective was Herod of his power, and so jealous of potential rivals, that his more popular brother-in-law, a very young high priest, had a drowning accident in a pool that archaeology says was very shallow. He had his favorite wife, three sons, his mother-in-law, and his uncle all executed to protect his power. So right, this stir in Jerusalem, what's going to happen? So the shrewd Herod asks for a meeting in secret with these magi. He wants to protect his throne. The priests and the scribes see that there's a prophecy that points to Bethlehem. So the men set out, but not before the king lies, and says, tell me once you find him so that I may go and worship him too. You see, Herod can't kill these men He needs them as pawns to find this new king so he can kill him. The wise men then head out to Bethlehem. I think this story of the Magi as part of the birth story starts to raise a lot of questions. Right? Who are the Magi? Where did they come from? Where did they go? Where did they come from? Cotton Eye Joe, right? But in all reality, we're not given much detail about the Magi. And I think there's a specific reason for this. This story we're looking at, the entire Bible, points to the main character, and that's Jesus. So what do we know about the Magi? Like I said, it's limited. Magi were probably astrologers. This is the same word used for like the astrologers and sorcerers when we get to like when we talk about the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And so in the ancient world they held very high positions. And like I said, they were probably astrologers, people that studied and also at one point worshipped some aspect of the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, something of that nature. Like I said, they they held probably a high status, were well off. We see that probably from the gifts as well. And they came from the Orient, which is vague, and most translators just translate that from the East. And that's about it. And we know they follow this star, which behaves strangely, right? It said it came up, which gave them a sign of a new king, and then it seems to, like, disappear. And they just come to Jerusalem, and they start asking questions. And then after this dealing with Herod, the star appears again, and they somehow know the household they're supposed to go to. And there's been a lot of different ideas about this star. There's all these ideas of it. It's a specific natural occurrence where Jupiter passes in front of this, and that's the star that they saw. And then there's some thoughts of it it was an angel in the sky or some sort of miraculous thing that God just put there for this specific occasion. We don't know. The text doesn't make it explicit. And I, I don't think it really matters because what does matter is no matter what, this is a beautiful miracle, right? If God lined up the universe, the planets and the stars that he's in control of to line up just at that moment to speak to these men, to guide them to the Savior, man, that's mind blowing. Like it was all meant to work that way from the beginning. Just as much of a miracle as if God put in the sky. So whether it was a natural occurrence of something in the sky or whether it was just something God placed there, this points to God at work. So for all that we don't know about the Magi, Matthew does reveal a lot. And as we were at the beginning of the book of Matthew, he is introducing us to Jesus. And he tells us several important things as a part of this introduction. He is the promised shepherd king, who is the rightful king as a descendant of David. He is the savior of all, emphasis on all people of the world, and he is to be worshipped. 
So I want to start with him being the savior of all peoples. So Matthew portrays Jesus at the beginning and ending of his gospels as the universal Messiah to all nations, not just for the Jews. Matthew begins and ends with this emphasis on the Gentiles. Here with Matthew 1 and 2, the genealogy, right, that we see there's um, Ruth and Tamar and Rahab, all Gentiles that that he is specifically including in this genealogy. We see the, the prophecy from the angel that he's the savior to all people. And then the Magi are introduced, these foreigners, these Gentiles brought in, that God guides there. And then all the way at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, we see the command, what we call the Great Commission, to go into all the world and make disciples. Now, we as Westerners, as Gentiles, are used to this. But I want us to, to take on the mindset of the Jews for a moment. Right? The Jews looked down on, on Gentiles. They were considered less. They were unclean. God chose the Israelites to reveal himself. And he chose Israel as his chosen person. Everyone else is less. And right now, Israel is being controlled by Roman pagans, right? And a hundred years prior, pagans came in and defiled the temple by sacrificing pigs on the altar. And we could even get into how the Jews especially hated the Samaritans, And yet we see the heart of Jesus in John 4, 1. It says, John says that Jesus had to go to Samaria. Where most Jews would go around it, Jesus had to go there. And we read about his encounter with the woman at the well. And he brings the good news to the Samaritans. Jesus healed a Roman soldier's servant. We see him loving all the peoples. And God's love for all people is not a New Testament concept. It is who our God is going all the way back to Genesis 22, verse 18, God is talking to Abraham. And he says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And God repeats this several times to Abraham, and also to Isaac and Jacob, that all the people of the world will be blessed because of their family. In Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2 and 6 and 7, we see this. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Right, this desire that all the ends of the earth would know him and fear him. In 1 Kings 8, as Solomon is dedicating the temple after the building as a part of his prayer, he wants the focus to be on the whole earth, knowing how great God is. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, this terrible, horrible people, to tell them to repent. God says, tell them I want them to be mine. God has always been about saving all the people of the earth even people we see included in God's story. Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's first husband, had come to serve Israel's king. And by serving David as the Lord's anointed, he presumably had turned to the living God. During Elisha's day, the Shunammite woman 
honors the prophet and his God. And in Jeremiah's day, when there was no faith in Israel, we find Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian, as the only one willing to stand up for Jeremiah, the prophet of God. We even see in the story of Egypt and the ten plagues, God says, these are coming so that Egypt may know that I am God, so that Pharaoh may know that I am God, and then we're told that so the entire earth may know. Right? And then we get later on, and the people encounter Rahab, and they're like, we've heard what your God has done. Right? It is spreading to the ends of the earth of who this God is. The prophets tell of God's vision to see the whole world know him, because the whole world is his. I like, I like how one teacher said it. The teaching of the prophets tells us at least three things that have to do with missions. First, the universality of God's plan of salvation. Third, or first, the universality of God's claim. Second, the universality of God's plan of salvation. And third, the universality of the messianic kingdom. And I won't read them, but like there's pages and pages of verses that speak to this. Verses like 1 Samuel 17, 46, Exodus 9, 14 through 16, Deuteronomy 10, 19. We see the prophets like Zephaniah, Malachi, Isaiah all talk to this. And like I said, many, many more. So if God is for all people and we see this challenging the Jews, what are we being challenged to? Who do we not maybe care for that God loves? Who might we think we are better than? I've sadly seen people with attitudes that the conservative, middle-class, moralistic person is God's chosen Christian. No. But you might not hold to that specific idea. Just, just fill in the blank. It's people with tattoos, people that listen to rap music, people that do X, Y, or Z aren't worthy of God's grace. Could be a sin, a lifestyle, a class, a race, whatever it is. But God's grace and love are for all people. He still absolutely demands holiness as we follow him, but he does not withhold his grace from any. We see this in verses like Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. In Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right? Paul's laying it all on the table right there. It's not political, it's not racial, it's not socioeconomic, it's not gender, none of these things. All of those things are just distractions that puffs us up with pride and we can so easily make people out to be the enemy, but they're not. People are the mission, right? The mission we even talk about, reaching people with Jesus. So who is the real enemy? It's Satan, and he loves when we focus on the wrong thing. The biggest advantage to Satan is when we make people out to be the enemy. It makes you feel good because it provides you with an easy enemy you can see and target. This allows us to pretend they have all the badness and we have all the good. All the world's problems are their fault. It's their evil and I get to bring all the goodness. Sadly, this can cause us to walk around tearing people down, even abusing others. 
and still think we're the champion of truth in the situation, a fighter for good. But the problem is when we do this, we are fighting for the wrong side. And this is so easy to do. During our vision series, we looked at that Peter and his unwillingness to really believe that Gentiles could be fully a part of God's plan without just becoming Jews. God gives him a vision, and he says, what I have declared clean, do not call unclean. And Peter has to change to be on mission with God. Peter, an apostle, a man who walked with Jesus, who did miracles, had his heart challenged by God and who his thoughts on who could receive the gospel. How much more should we seek God's heart and and maybe repent of something in ours? And sadly, this doesn't just happen towards people outside the church. Um, I was reading this article and and the the author talks about Christian subcultures. They're an interesting phenomenon and one can wonder what it means to be a Christian these days. Multiple brands of Christianity claim the same Lord and read the same Bible, and yet they promote vastly different values, sometimes as different as apples and orangutans. When you try to cut out Christians with this religious cookie cutter, you tarnish not only diversity, but also we trample on grace. It's one thing for a Christian subculture to cultivate unique values, but it becomes destructive when those values are chiseled into stone and forced on others. The author was talking about a story that he had heard about a Christian woman from the East Coast who confronted a West Coast youth pastor. She said, I can't believe any so-called Christian leader uh, would promote mixed bathing at youth events. I can't believe any so-called Christian leader would allow boys and girls to swim together. She expressed her concern all the while while puffing on a cigarette. And the youth pastor couldn't help but smile, speechless at the irony. Right, holiness is not about who we are allowed to swim with, or even about smoking, but the real stuff, the holiness that serves the poor, that prays without ceasing, that redeems the arts, that loves our enemies, and elevates community above corporate success and about preaching the life-giving gospel as a crucified and risen Savior in season and out. That's what it means to be a Christian. And just in case I'm being misheard, I'm not saying God doesn't care about holiness. I'm not saying grace is go out and do whatever you want. God does care about holiness. What I'm saying is God's grace and salvation is there for anyone. And then he does the work of making them holy. They don't have to clean themselves up or change before knowing him. They don't have to fit into the cookie cutter to follow him. We see this over and over again in Paul's epistles. Man, it even happened to Paul, right? He's out there trying to kill Christians and Jesus comes and says, hey, you're mine now. And as Paul writes, right, some of of the letters, he's calling out people on crazy stuff. He's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Stop doing that and do what's right. But he never once says, man, you don't actually follow Jesus. You've lost it, right? He says, you are my brothers and sisters. Let me pull you back in. But he never says they don't deserve the gospel. There is grace as we walk through sanctification. And I want to apologize. Maybe you're here and you've been hurt 
by Christians who have told you you don't deserve the gospel or you're too bad or, or whatever it is and you've made to feel less than something God's grace was there for. It's not. God's grace is for all of us. Right? As we look through the Bible, we see people who have done terrible things and God calls them to be his. And I want to say, if you've been demeaned in that way, I want to do say sorry. As Christians, we don't always follow God's heart perfectly. And then we get to the next thing. Jesus is the shepherd king. So the story of the Magi doesn't just present us with Jesus as savior to all people. We also see Jesus as the rightful king, the Messiah to Israel. And so a lot of times when Magi are talked about, the presents get really focused in on, right? Or if you're familiar with the song of We Three Kings or the traditions around it, it specifically links each present with a singular meaning about Jesus, but the truth is, we don't really know um, why. But, but I can tell you, these gifts are fit for a king. They are expensive. And I think they hearken back to the Queen of Sheba, if you know that story, where she comes to honor Solomon because of his wisdom and the kingdom he's built. She gives him gifts. So we have these genuine givers giving in an act of worship and honoring a king. And we're going to talk about the worship side in just a moment. But think about this. This is the first time we see Jesus worshipped. And it's by foreigners, but astrologers from a distant land. And the Bible repeats this theme. The ones we least expect are usually the ones God works through. But the first mention of Jesus being king here is not in the gifts. It's in the prophecy of verse 6. And this comes from Micah 5.2, which Pastor Andy read a good portion of that earlier. But the ending of that prophecy is different. We see something about a shepherd. And that actually comes from 2 Samuel 5.2. So somehow these things are being connected. And this linking of David and the new king. So what does it mean that Jesus is king? In Deuteronomy, all the way back there, God outlines what it means to be a godly king. And let's read that together. It's Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 20. Only he, the king, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear God, the Lord his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This idea of a king was never about what's so often associated with being a king. It's not about power. It's not about glory. It's not about right. It's not about riches. It's about leading a royal nation of priests that model holiness to the world as a message of who God is. So why a shepherd king? In order to really understand, we have to go back to, to Samuel and the beginning of the kingship, right? David the shepherd is brought in. But this idea jumps actually all the way back to Exodus. And, and because the Bible isn't a scientific book, it's written in an Eastern culture, 
that this was written more about imagery and painting a picture with the words. So this idea of a shepherd king is supposed to bring us to an image. It not only links Jesus with David, but it's important to speak to the kind of king. So I want to think about Exodus and Egypt for a moment. If you've seen Egyptian hieroglyphics depicting Pharaoh, he's usually holding some sort of scepter. And it kind of looks like a shepherd's staff, actually. And sometimes he's holding it out over his people. And this was the symbol of his power. That the sticks, which could be used for poking, poking, for prodding, for beating, for hitting, and the people would be in submission to Pharaoh. This is what he used to lead his people. It's the symbol of power and authority. And so as the people are called out of Egypt, we see this theme of empire versus Siloam, this tale of two kingdoms. Who are we going to trust? An earthly king with earthly wisdom or God's wisdom? Right? Are we going to be a people of peace and shalom and being different, or are we going to buy into the world's empire and say that's what we're going to do? A radio broadcast, Adventures in Odyssey, was doing a retelling of Pilgrim's Progress. And Christian, the main character, on his way to Celestial City, encounters a man named Worldly Wise who gives him advice. The advice turns out to be detrimental, and the king sends someone to save Christian. And so this person comes up, he talks to Christian, he saves him, he goes, why are you on this path? Why did you leave the main path? How did you get here? And Christian says that worldly wise helped him and, and told him to go this way. And the king's messenger replies with him, it's dangerous to listen to worldly wise because he is a liar. But the problem is sometimes he's helpful. And so take the passage in Deuteronomy. It goes against all kinds of worldly wisdom. Of course, of course a king should be rich. That's how he provides for people. That's how he pays for things, for building projects, whatever it is. He should be rich. Of course he should marry lots of wives. That's how you make treaties. That's how you help your people. You make treaties. And of course you need horses. How do you have a great army without horses? Like all of this follows the worldly wisdom for any king to help his kingdom. But God said, no, you don't need that. You can trust me because I fight for you. Right, and we see that when Israel starts turning away to all these other things, God says, all you needed to do was turn to me. Will we trust Jesus? We talked about Pharaoh with this stick meant to beat people. And the difference is a shepherd leads with his voice, not the stick. There are examples in Israel in areas even now, uh, nowadays, where tragedy will happen and a shepherd will die. And if the mantle of shepherd has not been passed off, if the sheep have not learned to hear another shepherd's voice, they can lose an entire flock of sheep. Like to such an extent, the shepherd leads with his voice that you can put multiple sheep in a pen for the night and the shepherd comes out the next morning, calls to his sheep and only his sheep will follow. We see this imagery of shepherd over and over and over again. God is referred to as the shepherd of his people all the way back in Genesis 48 and all the way in the end of Revelation 17 and everywhere in between. The focus of a good shepherd was to be on his flock, their provision, guidance, and safety. 
the epitome of the bad shepherds that Ezekiel talks about in his book, exposing Israel leaders, sketches out in vivid terms what it looks like when leaders fail to provide this care. These leaders were slaughtering their sheep for their own gain rather than taking care of them. So we see this speaking to the nature of Jesus and challenging our reaction to him. Knowing and believing and acting with Jesus as our shepherd causes us to be a people of the ears, not the eyes. So what we see around us may show defeat, may lead us to doubt, may lead us to despair, but will we trust the shepherd and his voice? Will we listen to his promises and trust his leading and guiding that what he says is true? That what the Bible calls us to do, even if it might not make sense, even if it sounds crazy and goes against worldly wisdom, we will trust. It is my great fear for the church that so many want Jesus as Savior. They were like, yeah, I want to be saved from my sins. I don't want to go to hell. I want to be with Jesus but they don't really follow him or trust him as king. They don't want to submit to him as king and master. And the reality is if we don't submit to him as king, we don't get him as savior. So have you said, Jesus, you're my king. You're in control. Tell me what to do, where to go. Help me love my enemies. Help me to love people. Change my heart to be like yours. And if you haven't, I want to invite you to do that today. And we want to celebrate with you And what happens if we don't trust Jesus and his plan over mine? Right, if Jesus is just here to make my life happy or to do whatever, when when all of that breaks down, we become disillusioned with him. We doubt him and eventually we turn away. The people of Israel, when Jesus rode in Jerusalem on, on a donkey for the triumphal entry, they cheered and roared for a prophet, the Messiah, a conquering king, to get rid of the Romans and establish Israel as a great nation, right? They're cheering the word Hosanna, meaning salvation has come. But they weren't looking for salvation on a cross. They weren't looking for salvation for their sins. They thought a literal king had arrived, the descendant of David, to rule the earthly Israel now. They expected Jesus to fit inside their box for the Messiah to come and meet the needs they wanted him to right then and right now. But Jesus didn't. And a few days go by and there's been no revolution, no coup, not even a single Roman has died. Disappointment, maybe anger and bitterness has set in. And when you turn a few pages on the night Jesus was betrayed, the same city that welcomed Jesus in is now chanting, crucify him. God often works outside the box we want him to. But are we going to trust and submit to him as king? And all of this leads into Jesus is to be worshipped. Do we follow, do we listen to his voice and worship our shepherd God king? I want to read verses 9 and 10 from Matthew 2 again. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Right, it says they were overwhelmed with joy at finding him. 
And the next verse says, as soon as they entered the house, they fall down and worship him. Right, that's the response, joy and worship. I was reading someone who was talking about it as, as we set up our nativities, right? We, we have the, the magi coming in and they're either just holding their presence, they're standing around, something like that. But what they do as soon as they see Jesus, they hit the ground and they worship the one they have been searching for. There has been this surge in defining worship over the last few years that worship isn't just singing, it's your whole life. And I agree, worship is not just singing, it's not just Sunday. Worship is going to speak to our heart. Worship is our whole life, but what does that really mean? And I think verse 10 really speaks to this and what the point of this is, that we're called to worship Jesus with joy. There is joy in following Jesus. I want to read a few quotes from men much smarter than I. Blaise Pascal said, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. They will never take a step but to this object. This is the motive of every man. Or C.S. Lewis, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an arrogant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And then C.S. Lewis, he challenges us. It's a Christian's duty, as you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can. Yes, that is risky and controversial, but it is strictly true. Maximum happiness, both qualitatively and quantitatively, is precisely what we are duty-bound to pursue. Right? This idea that, that joy in Jesus, because it's the only place to find true joy, should be what we desire. And as we follow him, we find it. I like how one author put it this way. Suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Her answer is, you must, but not that kind of must. What she means is this, unless a spontaneous affection for my person motivates your kiss, your actions are stripped of value. All of these are pointing us that the true joy is found in following Jesus. I've heard one pastor comically say that too many Christians go around and look like they've been sucking on sour pickles. Right? It's just like... But we have this Savior, right, who came to earth to save us, became humanity like us, dealt with all of our own issues, went through puberty, Right? He had acne and voice cracks and all of that. He was human. Wants to know us intimately, will not forsake us, who is always with us, who goes to prepare a place for us and knows every wrong thing I've ever done or thought in all the vileness of my heart and still says, Stephen, you're mine. Like that should fill us with joy. So why are we lacking in joy? We have so much to learn from the Magi. They joyfully bring gifts. They went on a journey that probably took over a year just to get to Jerusalem. And they found the desire of their hearts and their only reaction is joy and worship. Joy is being satisfied and content with who God is and where he has you. 
I want to be so satisfied with God as his servant that I don't need anything else to satisfy. Right? Even sometimes as a pastor, we can start to put our satisfaction in the wrong things. Right? How many people are attending? How many new members do we have? How many kids do we have at youth group? Right? Where the, those things aren't going to make me feel better. The joy is Jesus. For a while in college, I looked everywhere but for God for satisfaction. I, I, in college, I was a professional magician, and I, I would do shows. And, and I'd get to go do shows, and people would applaud me, and I'd see it sometimes ask for an autograph, and I'd be like, this is so cool. I'm awesome. And I would go to bed, and I'd wake up, and I'd feel empty. There was just this momentary satisfaction that would disappear. And as I searched, trying to find something that would make me happy, I descended into to depression, right? Right? What's the point? I ended up going to a ministry called Regeneration, kind of like Celebrate Recovery. And it was through going through the beginning parts of this, I was going through the booklet they gave, and I came to this part that says, it was talking about the highest calling for any human is to be the servant of the Most High God. And it's such a simple statement, but at the time, this light bulb went off. And I was just amazed and humbled that 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 is who I am. I am given an identity of importance to be the servant of the God of the universe that spoke and created everything. Right? That created me. He has given me purpose to serve him. And it was this life-changing moment of, man, there is joy in the purpose of serving God. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I think this is what it truly means to have a life of worship. If you're familiar with the Westminster Catechism, it asks, what is the chief end of man? It says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The answer is not two answers. It's one with two parts. We glorify God and we do that by serving him and enjoying him forever. So I think the big question is, how do I respond to Jesus? Will we respond like the magi who come humbly in submission to the king, this God babe, to give worship with all that we are? Or will we respond like Herod, protect my own interest, hang on to my own power, my own desires to try to keep control? Will I welcome the lost, the weak, the least, the people not like me like Jesus does? This is the whole story. It's how will I respond? I said at the beginning that this story is not really about the Magi. It's really the story of Jesus. So will your life be your story or will your life be the story of Jesus too? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you came to save. Lord, that you've saved each one of us. Lord, I ask that you would help us have humble hearts like yours. Lord, that we would find joy in you, satisfaction in you as we worship and serve you. And we go on reaching people with you. Thank you, Jesus.